Hey there, it's Trisha Lynn once again, and welcome to another episode of Crime 1-1, where it's kind of like 911, but the people I talk about here are not the kind of people you would want coming to your house, though. Speaking of exactly that, this time we're going to take a trip to Colorado. Aurora, to be specific. Aurora is a suburb of Denver that people might call to mind because of the theater shooting incident in 2012, where 12 people were killed and many more injured by a person if you want to call him that, named James Holmes. And more recently, there was a controversial police-involved death in 2019 of a gentleman named Elijah McCain, which has sparked recent protests and controversy there. But this incident goes back to 2004 and involves a man named Oki Albert Kite Jr., who went simply by Al. Back then, he was a 53-year-old divorcee who had moved to Aurora in 1998. He was originally from North Carolina and had a professional background in business and accounting. His work for a longtime employer drove him to living a moderately nomadic lifestyle throughout his adult life, living all over the country and even somewhat internationally, working on different projects. But in 1998, he was offered a job opportunity in Colorado and relished the prospect because he was attracted to outdoorsy activities like golfing, hiking, camping, skiing, and so on, and so the area seemed idyllic and thus he relocated there from California and worked as a project manager. He was known by family and friends to be extremely friendly, warm, and personable. It was rare for him not to have a smile on his face. He had a reputation for being the kind of person who would always gladly help anyone and was definitely not the type to make enemies. He had married once to his high school sweetheart and even though that hadn't worked out, he maintained a close relationship with his stepdaughter. When he moved to Aurora, he purchased a two-story townhome at 2002 South Helena Street. He lived there comfortably on his own for two years before deciding to supplement his income by renting out the basement portion, which featured its own three-quarter bath, a bedroom, and a living area. He acquired a tenant at that point who rented from him for a few years until deciding not to renew their lease when it ended at the end of April 2004. They notified Al that they'd be leaving, and in turn he began looking for a replacement by placing ads in the newspaper and in the University of Colorado Library. Not long after placing his ads, sometime in early May, Al was contacted by a prospective tenant who identified himself as Robert Cooper. Robert Cooper told Al that he was originally from the East Coast, but it relocated to the area for work at Wells Fargo Bank and was currently staying with his sister. He was very interested in renting this space immediately and would gladly provide Al with a security deposit and half the first month's rent. At the time of these events, Al was seeing a woman named Linda. He had known Linda for a while from crossing paths at various social functions, and over time they became friendlier and started dating and were progressively getting more serious. One Saturday evening, which had to have been either May 8th or May 15th, Linda came over for a visit, and when she rang the bell, Al came up from the basement to answer the door. He told her he was currently showing the basement space to Robert Cooper and that he would like her to meet him. Linda agreed, but just needed to run upstairs to the bathroom first. By the time she was coming back down, Robert Cooper was walking out. He didn't offer a greeting at all and kind of seemed to be pointedly not looking back, so Linda only saw him briefly in profile. She had the impression that he was intent on her not seeing him, but she noticed that he was dressed nicely in a suit, had curly hair, a slight limp, and a cane. She thought he was a little brusque, but figured that's just how some people are, so she brushed it off. Robert Cooper initially indicated he wasn't interested in the space, 
but he eventually contacted Al again to say he'd changed his mind and he wanted to finalize the arrangements. So on or around Tuesday, May 18th, Robert came to meet Al and paid him the security deposit and half the first month's rent, totaling $500. Al gave Robert a house key at that time. On that Saturday, May 22nd, Al took Linda to the airport so she could fly out for a week-long trip to Virginia Beach. It turned out to be a special occasion for the pair as during the drive, they decided to officially become boyfriend and girlfriend. Linda promised to call her new boyfriend during her layover and then again when she reached Virginia Beach. Al was best friends with a guy named Mike and they had spent time together that day working on a remodeling project in Denver. They parted ways around 3 p.m. and Al was planning on meeting up with Robert Cooper at some point after, possibly helping him to move a recliner into the basement. Linda called Al on her layover and he seemed normal at that point. However, when speaking to him the second time around 3.30 p.m., she noticed that he seemed quiet and short with her, which was not like him at all. She assumed Robert Cooper must have been there. But even if he was, why would Al's demeanor be so pointedly abnormal around him? That Monday, May 22nd, Al didn't show up to work as expected, and so his colleagues contacted his sister. She lived out of state, so she called the police to do a welfare check. They went to check, and after receiving no answer at his door and getting his sister's permission, they forced entry and looked around the house for Al. Nothing seemed much out of place on the upper levels. However, when they explored the basement, they walked into a ghastly scene in the bedroom, discovering Al's brutalized body lying in the corner. This is a warning that the following descriptions will be pretty gruesome, so just beware. Al Kite was found lying face down and had been hogtied with very intricately wound bindings. There was significant bruising and injury to the soles of his feet, indicating that they had been flogged. That's obviously a very distinctive type of pain infliction, but it is commonly used as a torture technique in multiple regions across the world. The suspect also took kitchen knives and inserted them above Al's eyeballs, into his eardrums, and also down through his shoulders. There were 22 stab wounds to his upper body, and his head had been nearly severed. There was a large blunt force injury to the back of his head, and it was surmised that he was probably attacked with a blunt instrument by surprise at some point. It was also determined that he was killed on May 22nd, within hours after last talking to Linda. The lead detective on the case described it as the most grisly, disturbing crime scene he's ever encountered which I can definitely imagine to be true given the extreme and deliberate amount of torture, brutality, and pain the killer inflicted upon Al. The coroner determined that he had been tortured over a span of some hours. The killer was careful to avoid leaving any evidence behind at the scene. Or so he thought, but we'll get to that later. Anyway, the knives used to conduct his handiwork were found in the sink soaking in bleach, along with the house key Al had given him, a pen, a drinking glass, and a honing rod. They were able to determine via Luminol some of the movements he made in the house afterward, which included him showering. He then presumably changed into a set of Al's clothes and made sure to gather up his trash. The house had been pretty much wiped clean of fingerprints. He jumped into Al's GMC pickup and drove to a nearby ATM where he was captured on its camera around 10 p.m. using Al's debit card to withdraw $1,000. Only you can't see his face because he's wearing a ski mask and gloves and looks pretty creepy if you ask me. The pickup was later discovered about a block and a half away from Al's residence. 
Further inspection of the scene led authorities to find a discarded rental agreement in the name of Robert Cooper. And guess what? It turned out that all the information provided was false. Surprise, surprise. The social security number belonged to an 81-year-old woman in Indiana. He used an address belonging to an elementary school in Denver, and his reference phone number was in Aurora Retirement Village. And thus this mysterious, quote, Robert Cooper renter became an instant suspect. This development kind of gives a new sinister tinge to that phone call Linda had with Al at 3.30 p.m., which would turn out to be the last time that she or anyone else would ever talk to Al Kite. Given his notably different demeanor, had he gotten a bad feeling about Robert Cooper? Did he sense he was in danger? Is it possible he was already under some type of duress? Maybe Robert had ordered him to take the phone call so Linda doesn't suspect anything is wrong? Things to contemplate, but I guess we'll never really know. In any case, Al's wallet and cell phone had both been taken. They went to Al's office to do some digging and discovered some scrap paper with the name Robert written on it and a cell phone number. When they called the number, a homeless man answered. Seems legit. And Al's cell phone was later discovered in a telephone booth. The suspect pointedly discarded both his phone and Al's phone in an area with a high transient population, making them more likely to be whisked away and to pretty much cause the temporary distraction that it did, particularly with Al's phone, and trying to pinpoint the location since authorities could see that it was active. The suspect's phone was a burner, of course, Another thing we definitely didn't see coming, right? It had been purchased at a 7-Eleven near the University of Colorado campus in March, but not activated until 30 days later. That was assumed to be purposeful because the 7-Eleven only kept their surveillance footage for that long, so there would be no way to track who bought it after the 30 days. Robert Cooper had used the phone only to respond to rental ads, seemingly looking for the perfect victim. Cooper had previously met with a local female professor for housing, and she would later report to the police that he made the hair on the back of her neck stand up. She said he barely talked to her, he only paced around and looked out of windows and generally weirded her out. She declined to rent to him, but she did offer some interesting information in that she happened to be a professor of Romanian language, and she thought she detected a slight Romanian accent when he spoke. She provided the police with a description for sketch number one. The second sketch is the result of brief passing contact that a female neighbor of Al's made with the suspect as he was leaving Al's place on one of the instances that he had been there prior to the murder. These images don't look drastically alike, but among the multiple descriptions the police gathered from the few witnesses who crossed paths with Robert Cooper, he seemed to be remembered in varying ways in general. Various age guesstimations, some saw a cane, some say he didn't have one, some recalled a limp, some say he didn't have one, there were differing opinions on his accent, and so on. I mean, it's possible that that can all be attributed to the natural limitations of witness recall. You can have 10 different people observe the same unit of whatever, a person, an event, a thing, or what have you, and people will see it in different ways naturally. So that could be it here. Or, given how cunning and focused Robert Cooper was in covering his tracks, it's not outside the realm of possibility that he was deliberately altering his mannerisms and his persona to confuse people. Very Kaiser Soze-like. Police thought of it as pretty obvious that with the amount of pre-planning, the identity subterfuge, the sadistic nature of the crime, and the methodical cleaning and covering of tracks, 
Killing was the primary motive, and Robert Cooper never had any true intention of living with Alkite. They do believe it was a random attack. They poured through over 11,000 of Alkite's emails and personal communications, and obviously talked to his associates and friends and family, and could find no indication whatsoever that anyone would have reason to target him specifically. So imagine innocently looking for a roommate and inadvertently inviting a murderous psycho into your house. Jeez. Poor Al just seems to have been the very unfortunate victim of a lunatic who was looking for someone to kill as well as a suitable murder dungeon of sorts. I do wonder why he chose Al finally. He initially didn't want to rent from him as we recall, but came back and rented eventually. Did he not find other places suitable for whatever reason? Was he rejected at every other place because he was creepy as hell and people picked up on it, like the professor? Was Al Kite his last resort? No one's been able to get the answers to those questions since the suspect has yet to be identified. His calculated countermeasures certainly did give authorities a run for their money. But as I alluded to earlier, it turns out he didn't pick up behind himself as thoroughly as he thought he did. He quite literally missed the spot. As meticulous as he was about scrubbing the scene of any trace of him, authorities actually did discover an obscure amount of blood on the stairs leading out of the basement and the DNA profile indicated it belonged to an unknown male. They didn't get a CODIS match, of course, and there used to be a time where that would pretty much be the end of that. It would be a matter of sitting around and waiting until there was a hit somewhere somehow. Fortunately, in the 17 years since Al Kite's murder, DNA capabilities have improved immensely. Advancements in recent years have made it possible for a lab to develop a digital composite image of what Robert Cooper may look like based on DNA markers. His ancestry has been traced back to the Balkan region of Europe, which incidentally includes Romania. As of late, his DNA has been submitted to the FBI and genetic genealogy tracing may make it possible to zero in on the killer by tracing him through his family tree. Here's to hoping that one day, the person who tortured Al Kite to death in his own home is brought to justice. <laughs>